Fly fishing is fun. It really is. It's quiet, peaceful, not a lot of people around, and it's very relaxing. Very relaxing. It kind of evolved all from having a love for the finished work, and apparently is in my blood because I've always gone back to the canoes. I started reading some books about fly fishing and went out and got a seven-foot Fenwick fiberglass rod and tried my luck. And for the first two or three years, to be honest, I didn't catch a damn trout. And I said, you know, I don't know how it's happened, but I've gone from rolling stones to kidney stones in the blink of an eye. (laughs) It's like way too fast to ride. How did this happen? But it's been a great ride. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Emily Bastion. Emily Bastion is a founding member of the Native Fish Coalition. She served as the organization's secretary and treasurer from its inception until April 2020, when she assumed the position of national vice chair. In July of 2022, Emily accepted the role of national chair for NFC. Emily has worked in many capacities, mostly related to fly fishing and conservation, and we will share some of her interesting experiences in this episode. Emily grew up in New Gloucester, Maine, with one eye on the water and the other in the woods that surrounded her home in her childhood. Ever since she was little, she had longed to join her father on his annual fly fishing trips to Greenville with his brother and family friends. Her father Larry and Uncle Don Bastion taught Emily to fly fish when she was only eight years old. Emily is a registered Maine fishing guide, and outside of her fly fishing pursuits, she enjoys hiking, backpacking, hunting, and cross-country skiing. Emily has been able to turn her lifelong love for the outdoors, and fly fishing in particular, into a career and lifestyle. Emily works at L.L. Bean, and was and is the first woman to hold the prestigious position as the assistant store manager of the flagship hunting and fishing store. Emily has taught fly fishing and archery at L.L. Bean Outdoor Discovery Schools and holds a second-degree black belt in karate. We have a lot to learn about Emily and her work with her nonprofit organization, as well as her career with L.L. Bean and her life of living and loving nature. It brings me great pleasure to introduce the Flyline podcast audience to an influencer and leader in Maine and national fishing conservation. Emily Bastion, welcome to the Flyline podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so... For the audience, Emily has agreed to join us at Pineland Farms, and it is a quintessential main day. It's got to be 80 degrees today, and we're in Emily's backyard, and she's agreed to sit down and talk to us a little bit, and I think she's got a great story to tell. Tell me about growing up in New Gloucester, and tell me about your family. Sure. I'm the oldest of two. I have a younger brother, Daniel, two years younger, and my parents are not from Maine, so I'm not sure if I'm a true Mainer or not, depending on your definition. Uh, My dad's from Pennsylvania, and my mom's from Virginia, and they came and settled in Maine because my mom's family was originally from Maine. So her her grandmother and that side of the family lived in Booth Bay, and they thought Maine was a nice place to raise a family. So they moved here and purchased the land for the house that they live in now and that I grew up in Mm -hmm. um, back in 1979 or 80. So that's where I grew up and and built my my young life. Um, New Gloucester as a town, you know, it's, it's changed a lot, but in a lot of ways it hasn't 
changed very much. A lot of the the friends that I had growing up in school and acquaintances throughout my childhood have re- either returned to or stayed in in the area in New Gloucester. It's a nice small town environment, great community. Um, I feel very very fortunate to have grown up here. Um, one of the things that certainly defined my childhood was just time outdoors. My home was situated on you know a fairly busy road, but set back a little bit, and we had a huge expanse of woods and fields and the river behind the house. So that was where we focused all of our time as as kids and just throughout my young life, um, adventuring and exploring in the in the woods and the fields. Tell me about your your mom and dad. What do they do for work? My dad is a civil engineer, was, he's retired now, and my mom was in the dental dentistry field for years, many she, years. What did she do? <laughs> she, she a dental hygienist? Or? She worked at the front desk. She worked in the lab, so making teeth and crowns and things, and she actually, one of her jobs was at Pineland Family Dentistry right here. And now, kind of interestingly, she works for L.O. Bean along with me. She's just a... Uh, Part time, but she really enjoys that. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Family, family affair. My mother was a dental hygienist growing up, Emily. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I don't have a cavity in my mouth. Neither do I. Yeah, not let's both knock on wood. (laughs) Did you have sealants put in when you were younger? Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, sealants is what saved us both. I think I was the first child in Maine to get sealants. I'm older than you. Interesting. And they were. It was uh, sealants is basically where they fill the cracks in of your teeth, the deep cracks and crevices with uh, with uh, like a ceramic. And it doesn't allow the sugar to get in. Well, we're getting wow. a little off topic here. But um, <laughs> I know that you were, you were, you, just because Bob Mallard loves to brag about you, I know you were the valedictorian of your class. Tell me, tell me about becoming the valedictorian in your class, where you must have been a really practiced student. You must have been studying a lot. You weren't out partying and drinking no, no. beer and gravel pits and things like that. No, absolutely not. I, I really prioritized my education. I just, I, saw it as an opportunity. I enjoyed school um, ever since I was little. I remember my first day of kindergarten. I was so excited and I just, I enjoyed learning and I enjoyed the process and I I liked doing well. I enjoyed just the subjects that we were learning about, particularly science and um, the hands-on activities. But I, I was, I was good (laughs) at, uh, I've, at all of it, uh, just because I decided I wanted to be primarily. It wasn't um, really anything. uh, It's kind of was an interesting way that I sort of approached school was I decided that I was going to do what I needed to do to be a good student and get good grades. And I wanted to, you know, um, I wanted to put as much effort as I could into it. How many people Um, were in your graduating class? I think it was less than 200. Oh, wow. So that's quite a bit, though. About 175, I'm going to say, give or take. Yeah. And you you graduated top of your class. I did. Yeah. We had a strong class. It was a a good group of kids. Um, Yeah. I was proud to be be in that group. I am still in touch with a number of them, and it was a great, great place to grow up and great place to be educated. So, and I know that we've talked about this before, but um, you went to uh, University of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. 
And did you start out with a science major right out of the shoot or did you change? Or? I did. Yep. I knew I wanted to study biology conservation. So I chose wildlife ecology. Um, I was really interested in fish and fisheries at the time, but there at UNH, there wasn't um, a freshwater fisheries focused program. No. So I did um, wildlife and mm -hmm. some classes in sustainability and environmental economics, like that type of thing. I studied abroad for a semester in New Zealand. It was a ecology and sustainability focused course or set of courses. It was a, a full full semester worth of, of courses. Yeah. Study abroad. Study abroad. That's yep. great. New that Zealand. seems to be more popular now than it was when I was in school. I wish I could have done that. Yeah. But it was a great opportunity. But you did Very make cool. a point earlier that you said that um, you were interested in, in freshwater ecology and, and fish science as well, mm -hmm. even at that point, but yeah. you just didn't. Yeah. Just because I was very much into fishing and fresh, well, let's, yeah, let's go fresh back water to that. fishing. You know, so, we talked about your dad a little uh, bit. The outdoors, um, wildlife. You, you started fly fishing at a very young age. Yes. Most I'm people don't start until their teens and maybe even their 20s. And some people don't even start till midlife. You started at yeah. eight years old. I did. <laughs> 30 years ago. Do you remember what your first experience was like? I do. Um, I learned to fly fish. I first picked up a fly rod and first learned to fly fish on the Roach River in Maine in September. Um, my dad had been going to Greenville, the Greenville area, primarily to fish the Roach, but some of the other destinations there with his brother and a group of friends since he moved to Maine. Yeah. So, you know, since the early 80s. Yeah. And it was always a trip that I wished I could go on, even as a little kid, even before I was fishing. And I think it was because I just, I loved, I loved that area. We would, all of our family vacations were camping, hiking, um, canoeing. So we used to go up to Moosehead to camp as a family. So I just wanted another opportunity to go to Moosehead. I wanted to be with my dad. Um, my dad and I were really close. So I decided that I wanted to learn to fly fish. And I told my dad that. <laughs> so he took me up. We took a day or two off of school, took a long weekend, and it was like the third week of September, and I was eight years old, and we went up and um, fished literally from, I was very intense then too, yeah. from sun up until sundown on the Roach River. We hiked in with headlamps on, we, dad taught me to fish, and yeah, I yeah. caught some of them, I caught my first brook trout landlocked salmon um, on the Roach River when I was eight years old, and Never looked back. Where would so, you guys stay? Would you camp out or did you get a cabin or did someone in the we family? We always camped. Yeah, we like... always camped. Sometimes at the state park. Yes. Uh, a lot of times at the state park, but sometimes we would also camp just on the river. Well, near a parking kind of sure. trailhead area, yeah. I should say. Sort of just off the dirt road like Mainers do. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar. If you're along the roach, yeah. there's some fire rings and pull-offs yeah. where people go. And like you said, if you don't go with a headlamp, you may not have right. the best spot in the morning. Well, back then you could be first to the river, just hiking in. You know, after your breakfast, after an early breakfast. Now I think they camp out all night on the shore. I know, and it's <laughs> the other thing that I've noticed too because of global warming, and I believe in global warming and that it's a real thing. Is that I remember going to the Roach River and having to have my waders thaw out in the morning because they were frozen. Yeah, you have had that happen. Yes, I remember just... wool caps and fingerless gloves. Second week of September, I remember. A couple times having to dip my fly rod in the water because the guides would ice up. It was a different world. And then a couple of years ago, I remember fishing in t-shirts at right. the Roach River. I know. I went, I went with so. a friend maybe five years ago. I mean, I've been several times. But at that point, it was too warm to fish. 
yeah. the water was warm and it was still late September. It's just mm-hmm. so we'll see if changed um, a lot in a relatively short time. Very quickly. That's exactly right. Well, Emily, this is great. I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> After you graduated from UNH, you started to take on some really cool jobs. You didn't just go work for one person and and just go work in an office. You actually started doing experiential work. Um, what was your first job out of college? Right out of college, I was a field biologist for a season for the Loon Preservation Committee in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was I was one of, I think, seven young. Most of us were young people, but there were a few that were later in their mm-hmm. career that were assigned a particular region of the state. I had the Monadnock region, and we had to monitor boots on the ground, the loon, the breeding loon populations Perfect. within that region. So Good for it you. was trying to document as closely as possible the um, the dates of hatching, the nest site locations, the survivability of the chicks. And it was mostly by observation um, and some human interaction as well. So establishing relationships with people on the lake so that you could uh, you couldn't be everywhere at once. So learning to to collaborate totally. with people who were yeah. also interested in in that work and i can see you in a boat it was neat yeah a canoe primarily kayak i had the kayak on and off my my uh little honda regularly and it was it was great it was just i was outside all summer i was exploring learning a lot so it was a neat that was a cool experience and then you worked as a park service ranger i did i was um out in I was in Yellowstone for an internship. That was a fisheries internship. And then um, a couple years later, I did a stint as an interpretive ranger in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So my it was my excuse to get out west. I had wanted since I was a little kid mm-hmm. to go out west, and it never worked out. So um, at that time, I was between jobs, and I said, I'm going to find an, a way to get out west. And I did. I, that was the internship in Yellowstone. And... Um, I packed up my Honda CRV and I hit the road and I was gone for four and a half months. Um, I didn't, I camped every single night. I didn't come back until it was too cold to continue camping and fishing. (laughs) So, uh, and did you fish in the park? It was awesome. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yellowstone is a remarkable place. It's just such a, it's an amazing place to be and experience and observe if you're, an ecologist and um, conservation focused person like I am and someone who appreciates wildlife and the natural world. Um, I got, you know, away from the roads and off the beaten path as much as possible, much to my mother's chagrin. I was by myself 98% of the time. Didn't I had a flip phone at the time that was not in service most of the time. So most of the time I wouldn't advise this (laughs) now. I'm I uh, am wiser, I would say now. But most of the time I was off grid. Nobody knew where I was. Um, Yeah, I had a lot of adventures. I saw a lot of wildlife, caught a lot of fish. Um, It was amazing. Yeah. And were you by yourself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I was by myself the whole time. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Well, was, at that point, had you studied martial arts or is that something you started had, doing later? Yep, yeah. Yep. So it I must was, have given you a little bit of confidence. I was a black belt, yep. a second degree black belt in martial arts, um, just a confident person. I had been outside, yep. outdoors a lot. I was confident in orienteering cool. and map and compass. Yep. And um, I had always had a good first aid kit, survival kit. You know, I, I knew where I was going and what to do. And mm-hmm. I had some emergency preparedness, but... Mm-hmm. Um, any close calls 
Yes. <laughs> um, I was charged by, false charged by a mother grizzly bear in Glacier National Park. Yep. While hiking alone. Again, not something I would advise at this point. Um, but that was the situation and it was just, uh, there was no one around. I was on a section of trail that was heavily wooded, mm-hmm. um, and came around to bend. The wind was in my face. It was, there was some ambient noise with the wind and I just, all of a sudden I could see, smell, hear bear. And she, before I knew it, she was you know, 15 yards away from me. Yeah. Kind of, um, pumping her front legs, chomping her jaws right. and huffing and looking at me. And I think it only lasted a few seconds, but right. I had bear spray. I had a sidearm, uh, but I just froze and spoke sure. quietly I don't know what I said, but I remember not looking right in her eyes, just kind of being very alert and aware, but speaking quietly and thinking to myself of what I would do next if I needed to. And then all of a sudden I heard something and I just moved my eyes to the right and this small cub ran between us and disappeared. And she quick looked at him, looked back at me and then took off. That's great. It was amazing. <laughs> so for the audience, a false charge is yeah. not really a full charge. It's they they, they bounce. Emily was uh, bouncing with her body. You can't see it on the on an audio podcast, but um, yeah, they just basically demonstrate their dominance really quickly all at once, and you know, either growling or um, you know, shaking your head or whatever. And that's scary. Never had it happen myself. Um, that's just incredible. <laughs> and then after that, so you did uh, you work out out west. And then after working out west, uh, did you come back and work for the AMC at that point? It's a little bit out of order, I think. I after I came back, yeah, I think it. No, it was um, Maine Audubon at that point, and then I had okay, and then I went to it. Yeah, it was Maine Audubon. Then I came back. When you came back from um, out west, you went to AMC work for Audubon. AMC was after. Okay. Trident was after Audubon. AMC was after that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when you started working for Audubon, it was with fish. It was. Yeah. T- tell the audience yeah. about you were working yeah. with some surveys. I was. And I loved being out west and I could have seen myself settling out there, but I also realized that I I missed Maine. I oh, missed yeah. my home. I missed uh, yeah. Brook Trout. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, uh, and I wanted, I decided while I was out there that, you know, my my calling, so to speak, I was driven to come home. Um, so I came back and I started working for Maine Audubon yeah. um, and the Brook Trout Survey Project. The Brook Trout Remote Pond Survey Project is what it was called then. Um, and the it was originally a partnership between Maine Audubon, the state, IFNW, and Trout Unlimited was involved at the time as well. And we were, um, I was responsible for recruiting volunteers, so yes. anglers from the public to yes send them out into the remote parts of the state into waters uh, that had never been officially surveyed before. So these are lakes and ponds, ponds, primarily small waters, very remote that we had no survey data for. So, and had also no stocking records. So the presumption was if the volunteers found brook trout, um, for example, then that was a wild native population self-sustaining um so that's what we were looking for we were looking for previously undocumented populations of pond dwelling native brook trout and you were working more on the administrative you were collecting the data Mm -hmm. from volunteers right yeah i helped design the survey um i 
compiled the the data sheets. I recruited the volunteers. I did the kind of the outreach work. Right. Um, I got the data as it came mm-hmm. back incoming and and summarized it at the end um, mm-hmm. of the season and passed that information on to the state. Um, but the volunteer coordination mm-hmm. piece was was took the biggest chunk of time, just helping people figure out how to get into these places safely and find what they needed and get the information. Yeah, and they didn't need to spend days on end. They just needed to see, nope. hey, is there anything living here? And yeah. what is it, right? It's observational. Yeah. 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 That's how we first met. You don't remember, but I remember going to, I think it was the uh, the fly fishing spring weekend that L.L. Bean has, and I believe you might have had a, a table set up trying to recruit volunteers for yes. your effort. Was that, does that yep. sound right? Yes. Yeah, and, um, and I think I signed up like you know, hey, put put your email down here to get on the um on the mailing list, and then I started getting all these emails from you and Audubon saying, hey, you know, we That's need funny. more help here, we need more help there. And reluctantly, yeah. I, I wish in hindsight I had done more, but <laughs> I was really tied up. Um, that's really good. I think cool. that's, that's, yeah, I met some great people. Yeah. And that was really starting to dip your toe into brook trout really. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It was an awesome experience. Yep. And I learned a lot about the heritage fish law through that. Um, Expl- and- expand on that. What's it, what's the program called again? The state heritage fish law, um, protects lakes and ponds that are designated as state heritage fish waters because of the presence of brook trout, later amended to also include Arctic char. These are lakes and ponds that have either never been stocked Mm -hmm. or not stocked in 25 years or more. Once those waters are added to the list, um, the legal prohibitions are no stocking shall be allowed on those waters and the use of live fish's bait is not permitted. Mm -hmm. Um, The use of live fish's bait is, of course, to prevent the introduction of non-native species, um, which can become invasive and um, detrimental to brook trout. And stocking, of course, is to, or the prohibition on stocking, of mm-hmm. course, is to maintain that self-sustaining wild native population. Don't pollute it with non-native fish. Right. right. So I think one of the things I remember you explained to me before, Emily's super smart people, um, is explain for the audience the difference between native, wild, and maybe stock fish, just by sure. definition. Yeah. So native simply put would be indigenous so historically present um it's a species that evolved um in that environment and is indigenous to that particular water we would say um wild means self-sustaining born in nature mm-hmm. um so we often will use i would use the terms wild native together when i'm referring to a water on the state heritage fish list for example that's never been stocked so mm-hmm. those are wild native fish they're self-sustaining, born in nature, and they're indigenous to that water. Um, the a stocked fish is a, is a fish that was reared in a hatchery environment. Then those fish are taken and introduced into waters, uh, primarily for the purposes of angling, uh, but sometimes for reintroduction purposes. You know, and that's really where Maine, I think, in hindsight, got it wrong. Uh, I think that the IFNW, with its best intentions of, you know, trying to sell licenses and making opportunities, here we are sitting actually next to a stock pond right here at Pineland Farms. Um, And that gives people who are new an opportunity to come catch a fish. But when they try to put um, non-native fish like rainbows, browns, or even just hatchery-reared brook trout into a population of native fish, it just, it's, you can't turn the clock back. It's and they've done it in so many places. And it's not – they did at the time, they didn't think about it in the way that we understand science now. So it's – you know, there's a blame game there, but blame has no home. 
but yet we're continuing. Well, that's right. Now we know better. And we'll talk about native fish because that's really (laughs) what you guys are trying to do is you're trying to to make it a little bit more, uh, um, put a a larger focus on the mistakes that are currently being made as well. Uh, You mentioned Trident just a minute ago too. Do you want to talk about that? Because that would have been your first stint with retail, right? Um, well, L.L. Bean came before that, oh. but it was season. L.L. Bean was one of my first jobs. Tell me it that. Was, yeah, tell um, me that story. That was, I was hired for, to work in the hunting and fishing store at L.L. Bean, mm-hmm. um, right after I graduated high school in 2000, January, 2004. Yep. So I took a year off between high school and college. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do was work at L.L. Bean and I got a job, sure um, and started in operations, so kind of back of house, yep. uh, but very soon was invited to start to work on the floor. So really, I was in the, the fly fishing department primarily, um, doing some cash register work too. But it was really the, the fishing side of things, of course, that got me most excited. Um, but that was that was 2004, so that was quite a while ago. I was seasonal, and then I would come back on breaks from school and summers and, yep. and work um, as I could when I was in Maine. So, so that's how you started standing. doing a little bit of retail work. That was the first retail yep, yeah. experience. So. And I'm picturing that was probably before the Big Hunt Fish renovation. It was when... It was. It's when uh, the fly sh- uh, shop area, I would call it, is uh, was in the camping area, what is now the camping area. It was actually when it was in the home, what is now the home store. So I remember it when it was in the camping area, when I was a kid coming into the store and right. shopping in the I don't, um, I don't think, oh, you atrium, know what, now you mentioned the hunting it. and fishing store was the separate building. I had forgot for about that. That's yeah. right. It had been. So, and then when they did, right, when they did <laughs> the big renovation, they moved it in back into the flagship store yeah. again. Exactly. Uh, what a fun location yeah. it is. So then did you decide to work at Trident after you had graduated from college? Is I that- worked at Trident after my time out west and after Maine Audubon. It was just kind of, this was me exploring a lot of different opportunities yeah. in um, in the working world. I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to land yet. Mm-hmm. I, I knew at that point I wanted to be in Maine. Mm-hmm. I knew at that point I wanted to be working in fish mm-hmm. Um fish fishing conservation. I was a very passionate fly fisherman, of course, at that time. Um, and I was interested in that as an opportunity to learn more about fly fishing gear and tackle and um, that side of things. So I took the job as general manager at Trident and learned a lot. Um, had a lot of fun talking to people from all over the world who were buying gear for fish I will never see, but um, just learned about different tactics, techniques, destinations. So it was fun. Um, and then, you know, I kind of got to the point where I felt like I'd I'd learned as much as I needed to about the gear tackle side of things, I guess, there. And I wanted something different. <laughs> so I did a totally different job with the Appalachian Mountain Club after that. Okay. I managed a off-grid um, lodge, wilderness lodge um, where, outside where was of that? Greenville. Oh, that yeah. was the Gorman Chairback Lodge. Yeah. So I did that for a few seasons, um, living off the grid in a little cabin and, you know, working as the lodge manager, mm-hmm. meeting people from all over the place who mm-hmm. in the wintertime would ski in and the summer would, would, could drive in. But it was a fishing, hiking destination. And for the audience, Trident was a fly, uh, is a fly fishing shop. It's now located in the Portland area, but they were located in Wyndham. And Emily was uh, boots on the ground at Trident. She was working in the shop every day, taking phone calls. And one of the things that Trident did, did and does still is they really have a very strong online presence. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you are searching for a particular reel or a particular rod or line, 
you can actually get someone on the phone that really has knowledge about what that product is and they can fill in the blanks for you. It's a different approach to running a fly shop. It's not a traditional destination fly shop. Yeah, exactly. So um, very different than LLB, very different yes. than Aardvark Outfitters where I used to work, where you were really interacting with people that were coming in to really, they were, they were going fishing that day. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, I think we might be at a good point to take a short break, Emily, and then uh, I'll do a fly line flashback and we'll come back and we'll talk about NFC. Cool. This fly line flashback focuses on the life and legacy of Carrie Gertrude Stevens. Carrie Stevens was born in Vienna, Maine in 1882 and stayed in Maine her entire life, never traveling beyond the state's borders. She moved to Mexico, Maine, and met and married her husband, Wallace, in 1905. Wallace was a fishing guide, so the couple moved to the Rangeley Lakes region. They settled into their own home in 1919 near the Upper Dam, the outflow below Muslik-McGuntic Lake. Stevens had fished with bait throughout her life until a local friend and charismatic duck decoy carver and angler, Charles Wheeler, had shared a streamer fly with Stevens in 1920. Wheeler, who was also known as Shang, tied the fly based on an English pattern, and he encouraged Carrie to try her hand at the art of fly tying. On July 1st, 1924, Carrie decided it was time to create a fly of her own and test it in the upper dam pool. She called the new pattern Shang's Go Get Em. On that particular day in 1924, Stevens resolved to simulate a smelt in the water, and she tied gray feathers onto a hook. She marched to the pool and began to cast, catching some salmon and trout. A little bit later, she got a bite, struggled for about an hour, then landed a brook trout that weighed 6 pounds, 13 ounces, and measured 24 and 3 quarter inches. Stevens' brook trout was the largest taken at the Upper Dam Pool in the previous 13 years. Carrie entered her catch in an annual fishing contest held by Field & Stream magazine and took second place. The following year, in 1925, the magazine's editor decided to publish Stevens' written account of her trophy catch. The sentence, He was caught with a Thomas rod, nine feet in length, a hardy reel, an ideal line, and a fly I made myself. Following this highly publicized catch, orders for this fly began to arrive immediately, and Stevens suddenly had a new career. Carrie opened a shop at the Stevens' home known as Rangely Favorite Trout and Salmon Flies. But Stevens viewed this as a side business, maintaining both her household and her husband's guiding service, which took priority. The fly that landed her record brook trout quickly evolved into a more refined pattern, the Grey Ghost, and was the most requested of Stevens' work. She had private clients who would submit special requests to her, but she also sold her flies to stores and camps in the Rangeley area. Her marketing consisted of fly cards with her name, pattern number, and hook size. She opted to use half hitches instead of a vise while tying. She was very protective of the dozens of new patterns she created and the thousands of streamer flies she dressed. In fact, she never allowed anyone to watch her work. Carrie Gertrude Stevens was an American fly fisher and fly tire from Madison and Upper Dam, Maine, and the creator of her fly tying business, Rangely Favorite Trout and Salmon Flies. Self-taught in the art of fly tying, Carrie Stevens invented the Grey Ghost Streamer, an imitation of the smelt pattern that is widely regarded as one of the most iconic of all fly fishing streamer patterns in the world. And now, back to the second half of our episode. It's funny that I even, sometimes I have to timeline my 
progression of of work out myself or kind of revisit my resume because there were so many different things that yeah. I did and different places that I was and stages of my life. So why do you get think, it a little out of order sometimes? Were you, I mean, <laughs> now you're you're in your mid to late thirties, Emily, I'm guessing, right? Thirty eight. So when you think no. about that, and I've I've had a fair amount of that as well. And and some people say, well, you know, she couldn't find her way. Well actually you were finding your way. I wanted to have different experiences. I was seeking adventure. I was looking for purposeful work, yes. something impactful. I had a lot of interests, but I I was trying to focus that energy. I mean, mm -hmm. and we skipped the warden service, which is fine. <laughs> um, but you know, that that whole thing was just so that I I I wanted boots at that point I wanted boots on the ground conservation work. And that's what I thought I would get with the warden service. And instead it was more on the law enforcement side of things, traditional law enforcement side of things than I was expecting or really discovered that I wanted. Although I valued that training very much that I got and that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I even worked as a traditional law enforcement agent in the municipal world for a while after that. Um, but I realized that it wasn't the, the, native native species focused conservation work that i was at that point desiring that's fair that's yeah i respect that mm -hmm. absolutely and i can think of experiences i've had where i going into it i thought it was a great idea and coming out of it i knew that i'd made a mistake or <laughs> i needed to rethink it and that sounds like what happened there but yeah. that's okay I but that's a great i wouldn't take it back though you know it was one of those things that it's part of your yeah. life experience, and I'm glad I had the law enforcement training. I, I feel that is something I've held on to in terms of just what it does for your overall awareness and confidence and abilities. Absolutely, so, yeah. So to be able to get through that kind of training. And to, for the audience, Emily had to go to the main criminal justice academy. Mm -hmm. um, so you went through all that training, and then you went through additional training with the warden service mm -hmm. just to become a licensed game. Not a licensed. What are you? Yeah, are you a licensed game warden? Yeah, game warden. Yeah, right. <laughs> Main game warden. And were you yeah. assigned a district? I I was. I was. Um, I worked. Uh, did a lot of my training in the southern part of the state, actually, and then I was um, going to do some work up in my district. Was going to be the Haynesville Woods, very remote, okay. so the East Grand Lake area i didn't end up spending a lot of time up there uh just because of the way the timeline worked out and decided to pursue different things but yeah um but i wouldn't i wouldn't take that experience away i it helped me become who i am today exactly it's part of your whole life and every day something comes into your world and and you're going to be drawing on those different life experiences as you respond to whatever's coming into your life and i think it's actually really great that you had so much going on when you were younger and um and that really brings us to, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you got started. You talked about doing some legislative work with Audubon. Am I, am I getting that right? Heritage Waters, we were talking about earlier. I learned about that first through my work with Maine Audubon. Yes. My first real focused experience with the legislature and advocacy was what predated NFC um, and actually what led us to forming Native Fish Coalition. So, yeah. And it was it was connected to the heritage law. Um, we were looking to, so it was Bob Mallard, myself, um, and George Smith uh, were working together on some leg a legislative proposal. Um, we had a bill where we were looking to improve um, components of the state heritage fish law. Um, our primary objective was to um, update the inclusion criteria for the law so that 
lakes and ponds uh, that met the criteria for uh, the original criteria for inclusion when the list was formed and the law was originally enacted would be included. So that would would and should be simple presence mm -hmm. of native brook trout and parotic char, um, the absence of stocking. Mm -hmm. And we, we were hoping that that would be the inclusion criteria, the presence and that it was not a stock population. And we also were looking to enact protections to the tributaries of those waters as well. So that was our legislative effort. Um, and that was back in 2017 um, gotcha. that we proposed that legislation. And that was what led us to form Native Fish Coalition. Exactly. Tell me about meeting Bob Mallard. I met Bob Mallard in... First in 2015, um, when I was with Maine Audubon, I went to a presentation that he gave for a Trout Unlimited chapter, um, and I was active in the chapter at the time, and it was a presentation about Maine's brook trout. So, of course, I went. I didn't know who Bob was at the time, and was fascinated by the information he shared, and he had great pictures, and just seemed very knowledgeable. So, after the presentation, I went up and introduced myself as the coordinator for the Brook Trout Survey Project at Maine Audubon and said, I'd like to ask him a few questions. And, you know, did he have some time to speak with me? And <laughs> he he kind of, uh, I will say, he kind of rushed me off at the time. He was busy, distracted. There were a lot of people sort of vying for his attention. He was selling books. And I didn't have an opportunity to talk to him. Um, and then it turned out, and then I didn't think a whole lot more of it. <laughs> <laughs> left. And then it turned out, I found out later that his wife, who was at the presentation too, said, you were very rude to that young woman at the presentation. She just wanted some information. You should reach out to her. <laughs> so a couple of days later, I get an email from Bob and we started a dialogue um, about my work at Audubon and his experiences with, uh, with fish and fly fishing in general, but primarily Maine brook trout and advocacy in Maine for native fish. So mm -hmm. that started the whole ball rolling. We ended up first next time after that, that I actually saw him was at fly fishing show um, in Marlboro, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. We both ended up there in, in uh, the following a few months later. Um, and we became friends and we're fishing, fishing friends and co-founders later on of native fish coalition. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was the, the origin story. <laughs> what was it like starting? I mean, it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. um, it really just started in Maine. It did. We were officially Native Fish Coalition of Maine when we originally incorporated. Yeah. Um, still have some of the original decals. And we had a lot of help from a young man, Tom Dickens, who was the original person who contacted. He's a, a Maine, was a Mainer, Maine resident, active and, and He's a fisherman and conservation-minded yep. person and also politically active, but he called us after the hearing mm -hmm. that we were involved in with George Smith for the State Heritage Fish Law Improvements and said, I listened to the entire transcript of the your testimony. Um, you guys have a great case. You made an excellent, you, made, you had an excellent position. Um, you need some formal support and some, you need an organization. You need something someone backing you. He said, have you ever formed, thought about formalizing and kind of incorporating a nonprofit? And we said, no. no. <laughs> he said, well, I can help you. And he helped us kind of navigate some of the legalities and the um, technicalities of forming a 501c3 yes. and incorporating and getting our documents in line. And, yes. um, and it was 
incredibly helpful. I'm yeah. not sure we would be where we are today no, I, without Tom. So. I can't imagine navigating that. Yeah. You know, I have a hard enough time running a podcast, but I get a <laughs> nonprofit organization. But um, well, you guys are doing a great yeah. job. You have a great web presence. And I, I would encourage the audience to absolutely get to go to the website and make a meaningful donation uh, because they're doing fantastic work, especially if you have an interest in in preserving these, the precious waters that we all enjoy in Maine. So NFC started in Maine, but you guys have expanded. We have. We originally, as Native Fish Coalition of Maine, very quickly realized that there was interest and passion for Native Fish conservation outside of Maine. And we changed our incorporation to Native Fish Coalition, and we started opening chapters in other states. New Hampshire and Vermont were the first two. We quickly expanded from there. We're now in 17 different states, contiguous from Maine to Alabama to the into the west, west westward movement. We're in westward, of course, by definition then, uh, geographically, not just about trout. We're yeah. not just cold water. It's all native species. And would not be surprised if we're 20 states deep by the end of the year. Yeah. So the, the support has been really humbling. Yeah. So <laughs> again, native fish doesn't mean native brook trout. Correct. You just touched on that. It's really just protecting all native indigenous fish um, and wild, right? Correct. Wild uh, native. Where where they are and where they're still surviving. Yes. Uh, what so does the does the organization, Emily, have a mission statement? Yes. Protect, preserve, restore wild native fish through um, stewardship of the fish and the places they live and their habitats. So it's not about just cold water species. It's no. not about game fish centric. We look at all species. We believe that truly healthy, resilient, functioning aquatic mm -hmm. ecosystems. Um, we can't get there until we have the full complement of native species Absolutely. Uh, present. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what other species other than trout are we talking about? Well, um, Alabama is one of our early chapters, interestingly, and they're all about their native stream resident uh, red-eye bass, of which good. there are a number of different species, and they're beautiful fish. When you look at pictures of these very colorful, yeah. unique bass species and the backgrounds of the places they live, it looks like it could be brook trout water, uh, but it's it's warm water and yeah. different you know assemblages of of totally cohabiting species, and but they catch them with light tackle fly rods and it's fascinating fish also non-game species so mm -hmm. we look at threatened and endangered species as well so in this part of the world that means we were doing work with atlantic salmon and threatened and endangered short nose and atlantic sturgeon down in more of our southern extremes we're looking at some of their rare and threatened native darter species for example yeah. so there's yeah. a lot to work with and it's right. just been fascinating learning about all these different species so emily one of the things that I'm curious to know is I know I've, ta I've talked with Bob Mallard about this a, a number of times and I was surprised to hear his take on it. But um, let's look at a section of river in Maine that was industrial, like, let's say, Shawmet on the Kennebec, where we're probably not guessing that there's much original native wild what would have been there before dams and industry. Is there a position NFC has with developing a wild fishery there through stocking or where, where do we stand on that nfc is for fish not fishing right and our focus is very absolute in that way so we are focused on what is best for wild native fish um 
that being said, we therefore, as a small volunteer-centric organization, are very cognizant of focusing our efforts and our advocacy on those places where we can make a difference and have an impact and that the most significant impact. And oftentimes that is, for example, in some of your your headwater streams, the smaller waters, the remote ponds, and focusing on some of your rare and threatened species. Mm -hmm. So the Kennebec Solon section is not an issue. For example, it's just, it's not really a battle that we would fight. Right. It's not something we're going to change. Mm-hmm. And seeing that your question was more about fishing than fish, it's just, we'll leave that for other, other individuals and organizations to worry about. We would, w- where we would become involved is when there was a question about an impact on a native species. Absolutely. So, and what's happening is, and Bob and I have talked about this, and also my friend Bill Pierce and I have talked about this, is that the fishing in some of the other places that are not considered native and wild has become so poor that it's drawn the diehard fishermen to places like the Rapid River and the Galloway and deeper into the woods. And it's putting a lot of pressure on these really fragile places. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's high time that we try to reconsider what we can do recreationally so that someone doesn't have to drive two hours to go catch a trout. Um, maybe, uh, but in any event, that's, that's, that's about fishing and that's what you and I are <laughs> out here to talk about. Um, let's go back a little bit about legislative efforts. How's that gone? I mean, how has Maine received you and, and NFC coming to them with ideas? We are very active in monitoring legislative proposal, current legislative proposals that would affect wild native fish species. We review in detail every year the um, proposal of regulations and changes that comes from the state, Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Our message is certainly resonating with more and more people all the time, Mm -hmm. I believe. And I think that kind of what you were alluding to earlier in terms of in a lot of places, an overall decline, unfortunately, in the quality of the f- the fish and the fishing in this state is making people more aware of um, the need to protect and conserve what we have that makes Maine special and unique. So I, I certainly think we're making headway and moving in a positive direction overall. Um, I'd like us as an organization to be more legislatively active. We're not a lobbying organization, so it, we wouldn't be in in that capacity, but in terms of kind of working with legislature legislators to propose um, more bills mm-hmm. to help improve mm-hmm. um, the state of conservation for focused on native fish species in Maine, we did we've done some of that. We were the initiators of a bill that was proposed a couple of years ago to formally list Atlantic salmon as an endangered species as part of the Maine Endangered Species Act, MISA, which it absolutely should be. It's not. What? It's a critically endangered species. It's a endangered at the federal level. Maine is the last bastion for any remaining um, genetic integrity for Atlantic salmon in the United States, the contiguous United States. Um, it's the only place in the contiguous United States where the feds are putting any effort into restoration, yet it's not listed at the state level. Why We is believe that? that's a violation of the intent, if nothing else, of MISA. Um, but it didn't didn't go the way we had hoped. We're continuing efforts on that front. Is that um, driven by so industry? Stay tuned. <laughs> is that driven by industry or is that driven by licensing or is it's it what? a highly politicized it issue, is. unfortunately? Yeah. Um there's all sorts of excuses. Economic, yeah, political, 
And it's it would be really probably a whole nother podcast that we should have others with more expertise on it uh, to speak to. But it's it's disappointing. And I believe that if nothing else, it's a violation of the intent of our Endangered Species Act in the state of Maine. The fact that there still are salmon, you are 100% correct. I think what you hear the drum beating is people are saying the horse is out of the barn. It's too far gone. The population is too small. The genes are too polluted from uh, fish farming, escapee fish. And there's a, you hear these arguments, none of which are valid. To Emily's point, we should be doing everything we can. Right. Um, you know, you can't afford not to protect these species, right? right? My father taught me how to Atlantic salmon fish when I was a kid, just like your father taught you how to brook trout fish. So I remember going to Bangor and seeing wild run Penobscot fish. And, you know, you still can today, but not to the same degree that we did. Right. Um, and there are places where there is a better chance and more hope of restoration than others. Um, I would put in a plug for our friends at the Downey Salmon Federation that are doing excellent work to restore native Atlantic salmon to their um, indigenous habitat in Downey, Maine. Go. Emily, uh, I don't know that the audience knows this, but I know you're a Maine guide. Yes. When did you get your guide's license? Tell me about the process. I got my guide's license in 20... 18, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I only, I guide a few trips a year. Yeah. It's a fishing, um, fishing license and I only take fly fishermen and I only go yeah. uh, for biomated fish. And I actually now have the only two trips I took this year, I donated to Native Fish Coalition and the proceeds went to the organization. But I took a class to, prepare myself for the guide exam. And I'm glad I did. I learned a lot. I think I still would have done well without the course, but I felt more confident and prepared going into the test that way. It's a difficult test. Um, they certainly test your knowledge of all sorts of aspects of the main outdoors and um, fishing and survival and client care, you know, and safety, all of those things. So it's a very comprehensive exam. And I think attaining your guide's license is something to that I respect for anyone who's yeah. who's done that. So I wish I had the time to do a little bit more guiding than I do, but I enjoy enjoy what I do. And yeah. I think you've taken on just the right fit for your personality yeah. too. It works yeah. well. I enjoy fishing myself too much to <laughs> to not spend some time, you know, on my own as well. So uh, I think that, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, I, I, I've said before, if you listen to some of the other podcasts, I used to lie, steep and cheat and steal to go out fly fishing. And I said, well, I love fishing so much. I think I'll become a guide. <laughs> well, as soon as you become a guide, you're the one person who's not fishing. Right. And that is what Emily's talking about. And I actually found it very rewarding to basically be fishing vicariously through somebody else, mm -hmm. like picturing if what you would be doing or what fly you would change to or what technique changes you, you know, what cast you would use, even where to be, you know, like yeah. where should we go today, you right. know? And that to me turned into a different kind of a challenge. But again, the podcast mm -hmm. isn't about me, it's about you. But I think that that is one thing you do give up. And any young person is thinking about getting into guiding, you need to know that you're the one person that will not have a rod in your hand very much. Right. Um, and, and it also, what Emily does is kind of challenging too, because you're trying to take people into remote areas. Right. So your guy, tell me about, let's talk about a, a guided day with Emily Bastion. <laughs> sure. Um, I like to give people the 
option to fish. So say we're going for wild native brook trout. So the first question I'll ask is, do you enjoy fishing moving water or still water? And I try to put in a plug for Maine for being really the last Mm -hmm. stronghold for the remote wild native brook trout pond fishing. It's really a unique experience if you haven't done it. Um, And the focus can be on also kind of as an aside, showing people our our heritage fish waters and how special they are. So I've done both. I've guided ponds and uh, primarily for the moving water, it's been the small streams. So we'll go to a remote spot. We'll hike in, hike as far upstream as we want to go, and then we'll fish out. And we're covering a lot of water that way. It's not standing in one place with a nymphing rod for eight hours. You know, we're covering some ground. You're not guiding the Roach River. No, I'm not. Even though I love the Roach River, I'm guiding. Um, it's a different kind of experience. I like to keep people moving and active. So I have to understand my client. <laughs> also, we Bob and I guided a, um, a pair of really just wonderful um, guys last year, older gentlemen. One was Jim Finn, the creator of the Golden Retriever, actually, fly that a lot of people in Maine know. And they wanted to, he and his friend Roger wanted to fish ponds. So we met them at the end of the dirt road, you know, right where the, where they turned off the tar and we drove them, you know, miles in, in the Maine woods. Um, Notice Emily's not telling you where she is. Right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, to some waters where we had canoes already there uh, stashed so we were able to walk in and and get them safely into the watercraft and had a wonderful time so that was one of one of our experiences and i'm you know make a nice lunch but the focus is really on on the fishing and the experience yeah and it's always always a good time it's uh yeah. like you said with guiding it's it is it is kind of experiencing it vicariously through others you're you gain satisfaction yeah. from seeing other people experiencing this wild place and catching a native fish so (laughs) and it's tremendously rewarding to be kind of on the instructor um tutor kind of position of Mm -hmm. that i think people really appreciate when you allow them to have that experience by making it possible for them yeah otherwise they may not be able to do it right um i can't believe we've gotten this far into this discussion without talking about don bastion oh yes (laughs) my uncle don uh, my dad's brother, older by one year, was a very well-known fly tire and fisher and author in the in his world of fly fishing, a regular at all the shows and was in the on the tying aisle tires aisle. Don did he specialized in the classic wet flies, mm-hmm. primarily the Ray Bergman's patterns, mm-hmm. did the full color plates for all of from all of Bergman's trout flies in his original book. I learned to tie because of primarily my uncle, also my dad, of course. He and my dad learned together. They taught themselves together. Their story, I think, was their dad gave them a vice and a few materials and showed them how to tie, I forget what fly it was, but showed them how to tie a fly, and that was it. That was the extent of their instruction. And then they figured it out together, and my dad still ties you know, all his own flies, as do I. Um, my uncle took it to the extreme and became a professional and an absolute perfectionist. I learned a lot from, from my uncle. From yeah. My I aunt. sent you a, I was at Thanksgiving at my aunt's house in Chelsea, Maine, and she had this very rare Bergman book. I mean, beautiful. And I was reading the forward of it and uh, I texted you, Emily, to say, 
this is your that. uncle right yep. here. And <laughs> I mean, it's it's a commanding uh, encyclopedia of patterns that he has taught Don, Don Bastian. Yeah. Um, and like like your uncle and your father, I wasn't formally taught how to tie flies. Mm-hmm. My dad went to the L.L. Bean fly tying class That's with funny. our Penobscot Indian neighbor, uh, Terry Neptune. And they, they came back and I literally just sat and watched them. And and my father had the toilet bowl wax ring that we'd use for dubbing <laughs> wax because you could. That's a yep. lifetime supply of it, rather than getting the little thing. All these little tricks. Bean yep. was great about giving away these. And instead of using a, a proper purchase whip finisher, we had like a toothpick with oh, really? with a little wow. bit of mono tied on the end, and then you could yep. put the tag in through and pull it to whip finish your fly. That's um, awesome. So is Don still alive? He's not. He passed two years ago. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So he didn't we live missed. a full life. Uh, he lived a full life in terms of enjoying his life, but no, yeah. not not as long okay. as we would have would have hoped. Uh, but I think of him all the time whenever I'm fishing, tying. I bet, I bet you do. I bet <laughs> he's a great inspiration. Emily, we talked about your guiding. We've talked about NFC. Um, I think another uh, another facet of who Emily Bastion is is you're a hunter. I I am. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you got into it. I got into hunting quite a bit later than fishing. Um, I was a senior in high school when I decided I wanted to go turkey hunting for the first time. I don't remember why I decided I wanted to go, but I was interested in it. And um, a a neighbor and friend kind of, and my dad had never been turkey hunting either, but he was excited that I was interested in learning to hunt because he grew up hunting. So he and I together kind of learned about turkey hunting. (laughs) And we, he, uh, it was my senior year in high school, the last couple of weeks of the season of the year. So, you know, it's not that serious at that point. So I was actually kind of got permission to come into school late a little, a few days. Yeah. I was out in the woods chasing turkeys. And it was just what I love about hunting is a number, a couple of things. First, obviously, the, the excuse to have that experience in the outdoors by yourself or with my dad. That's how I started. But in nature, without any devices, just being quiet, focusing on what's around Absolutely. you and learning about the wildlife that, mm-hmm. that is around you and the natural environment. I'm also very uh, I'm very passionate about living in a sustainable way and treading as lightly on the earth as I can. So I feel that a small part of that is that I can harvest at least some of my own food. I always grow a large garden and I try to take one deer a year, Mm -hmm. a turkey or two if I can. And that certainly supplements Mm -hmm. um, my protein consumption for the year. I'm an animal lover. I have absolute respect for all wildlife and was always an ant, always have been, still am a lover of animals. And I, I don't hunt because I enjoy killing things i hunt because out of respect for the animals and the environment and i wouldn't ever take a shot that i that was not ethical and i have the utmost respect for the animals that i hunt and i process my own meat Mm -hmm. and i take it from point a to z you do process your own (laughs) meat yeah oh that's fantastic do you how do you what's your setup we have a a nice sanitized area in the garage <laughs> yeah that's great <laughs> a big butcher yeah. butcher block and yeah you know lots of big couple big freezers and nice good system so yeah my dad and i kind of we 
we're self-taught, learn that part together. So so are you a tree stand person or are you more of a walking around person? Both. Yeah. Both. Um, if I'm walking, it's still hunting. So it's moving incredibly slowly, yes. oh, you know, yeah. just an inch at a time. Mm -hmm. Every couple of steps you stop and you study intently everything around you mm -hmm. um, and just become part of the forest <laughs> as yep. much as you can. Absolutely. Um, I, I, but I enjoy sitting even just in a tree stand and just observing for hours. It's really the, I'm a very like fast paced kind of intense, some would say impatient person in a lot of aspects, but in hunting I can really, and fishing, um, but it's a little different approach, but I can really find myself able to slow down and quiet my mind. And I like that. We share that. I, I actually quit deer hunting because I was too impatient. I shot some nice deer in my in my life, and you know, as a growing up in Maine, and my father was a hunter and whatnot. I, you know, you're there's a lot of pressure to get out there and shoot that big buck and do you know your buddies in high school are all trying to you know it's the same. But I just found that you know the scent and the time of day and the commitment it took was to me it was just a a little too much. And I don't really care for the taste of venison. Some people love it. I bet you do. I do. I, I just, uh, for whatever reason, it doesn't just quite settle with me, but that's how I got into bird hunting because bird hunting, you can slam the door. You can say, <laughs> I'm out of here. We're going somewhere else. And you can really have kind of, it's a little more like, it's almost like the drift boating of the hunting world. You're doing yeah. it with somebody else. And so it's a little bit different, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for people like yourself that do have the patience to do it because it requires patience. Deer are yes. very, very, very aware of their environment. And you have to blend in. Right. Right. I think the reason I, I haven't spent as much time bird hunting, even though it's a ton of fun when you hunt over dogs oh, yeah. and are active. That's how I would hunt. Um, no road hunting for me. Nope. Um, <laughs> it's, I think it's more that it the timing conflicts too much with when I like to still be fishing. <laughs> yes. So yeah, yeah. That's October. why come November and early December, I can really focus on deer hunting. Yeah. And I've actually yeah. started to do more bird hunting in November because of climate change. It's, it's, I like it to be cold when I'm bird hunting. It allows a dog to not get too hot. Um, speaking of dogs we and speaking of your love <laughs> of animals, tell me about Maybell. Maybelle is my black lab. She is going to be five this November. She's my first dog as a individual, a single person. <laughs> um, grew up with dogs, always had pets. Uh, you know, and when I was living with my parents, we always had a dog. But Maybelle was the first dog that I went out as myself to to take as my own. Um, so she's my fishing buddy um, and camping buddy. She comes on all the trips and she stands right beside me on the streams. She likes to look at all the fish. She always looks very confused when they disappear back yeah. into the water, but she loves to watch them. And she's funny. If you if we go too long without showing her a fish, she starts to get impatient. She'll start to bark and kind of get mischievous <laughs> but she's very uh intent yeah. and very good when when we're catching fish it's pretty funny um but she'll sit in the canoe and when we're pond fishing looks around uh likes to spot rising fish she's actually pretty good at that oh yeah um but she has uh she's very spoiled she has her own cot and her own sleeping bag and yes she's She's a very well. Does she have well her own tent, or does she sleep in your no, tent? No, no, she sleeps in my tent. She sleeps in <laughs> right next to me. <laughs> yeah, of course. She wants to be near mom. Yeah. Um, and in the wintertime, 
in the winter time. When the I snow love hits snow. The ground. Yeah, I love snow. I miss that we don't have the traditional snowy winters. I remember as a kid. But when we when we get the snow, I love cross country skiing yeah. and I love snowshoeing. Mm-hmm. I do some winter camping. I never got into downhill skiing. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the idea of the crowds and the no. expense. I didn't need the speed. I just I like the peacefulness of mm-hmm. the woods and the quiet yeah. and just being able to go out your back door, you know, not have to go anywhere special. Gr- growing up, we used to have the wooden splitkin skis with a three three pin binding, and we just go out over the raspberry bushes and the stone wall and yeah. go down to the bog. And that's what I always I love that about skiing. My mother yeah. still talks today about we used to ski every weekend in the wintertime. Oh yeah, and it and I've seen uh, you, some of your posts on Facebook that you take Mabel with you. I do. She loves it. <laughs> she uh, if the snow's real deep, she'll follow me and step on my skis. Of course, of so. course. <laughs> but if we're on a trail or it's packed down a little bit, she likes to run up ahead and then run back to check on me. And yeah, we have a lot of fun. Um, I remember as a kid, our family. The dog would come out with us too, but it would be all four of us. Dad would break trail in yeah. front, and then it'd be me and my brother and mom, and we'd all just trudge through totally. <laughs> through the deep snow on our skis. And fun. Yeah. Did yeah. you use waxless skis or did you use wax skis? Started out with waxless as as kids, but then we learned about yeah. how to wax for yeah. more performance, I guess, as we started going on some of the groom trails around. Pineland has some groom, nice groom trails. Yes, they do. Um I've gone full circle. We started waxless. I went to wax and now I'm back to waxless again. I yeah. just like a pair of backcountry skis with a metal edge. And that's what I have yeah, right that's now. That's just, to me, it's the only way to go. You can go out in about any conditions because mm-hmm. if it's crusty or if it's uh, mashed potatoes, springtime, you, the, ski, the skis don't complain like they do when you have wax on them sometimes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Same way. One of the things that I wanted to share with you, Emily, is that we have a mutual friend, Tom Ackerman. And you do some you do some fly fishing with Tom because Tom's an ex saltwater guy, and yes. you and your you and your dad like to go striper fishing with Tom as I do as well, and we go down to the quote unquote clam hole, <laughs> to which we will not talk anymore more. about. He and I were riding back from the clam hole uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was telling him that I had the opportunity to do a podcast interview with you, and he said Emily has integrity. That's kind of a general word, and I said, huh. well, what is? What do you mean by that, Tom? And of course, Tom really is very intuitive. I asked him, what do you mean? And he added, uh, personality is what you are on the outside. Character is what you are on the inside. Where And when they are the same, that's called integrity. And Emily has great integrity. That's what Tom's compliment to you was. So That's very kind. Yeah, I think it comes I like through. That. I mean, LLB would not have you working in the capacity that you did if you weren't an honest person, a hardworking person. And um, the rubber hits the road with Emily Bastian. You're not someone that makes airs. You're not someone that uh, brags about things. I don't know you as well as others do, but I can just tell in the short amount of time I've had to get to know you that you're seeing the real deal when you meet Emily. And I think it's a real opportunity for the people to come into LL Bean. So where do you see yourself in like five to 10 years? I'd like to continue to grow in my career at LL Bean. Yeah, absolutely. It's a I started my working life at LL Bean, which is pretty neat. And in, you know, the five years since I've been back there full time, I've been climbing the ladder, so to speak. It's an awesome company, a great team. I just, everybody who I work with is ex- genuinely excited about what they do and happy to be, be where they are. And we talk about fishing and hunting and conservation in the outdoors and Maine in all the time. And it's just a great environment. So, so I see myself there. I also see myself 
continuing to grow with Native Fish Coalition. And I would love to say that this organization, given where we've how far we've come yes. since 2017, um, that I hope in the near future we are at a point where we can bring on some people that are actually doing this as their job. Right now we're volunteer centric. Um, and what I do for Native Fish Coalition is all volunteer. Um, if there was an opportunity to work for Native Fish Coalition, that would that's my passion to work in conservation, to have an impact, a positive impact on the natural world. Mm -hmm. And I believe we're filling a really important niche and doing good work. And I like to, to continue in that capacity as long as I can. I don't think you can fail because if you think about either side, if you stayed working with beans uh, and became even more of a leader than you already are, and you're already a leader there now, um, that would be wonderful. But I, I see you doing more with NFC. I think that at some point um, you're going to have to take on a larger role <laughs> and um, be more of a spokesperson for it. And I don't think – I can't think of a more qualified person. I can't imagine anyone replacing you there. I don't think the organization would exist without me. Well, thank you. That's That means a lot. It's, yeah. uh, it's been built by a lot of dedicated people mm-hmm. who care about mm-hmm. wild native fish. You know, it's uh, – if someone wants Humbling. to do, if someone wants to make a donation to NFC, how do they do that, Emily? Thank you. Just visit nativefishcoalition.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll take you to our website, which is full of information. Mm-hmm. It's quite comprehensive. Um, a lot of links into the different projects that we're working on, information about all the different state chapters, the people who are involved, um, and opportunities to support, whether it's making a donation in exchange for some Native Fish Coalition swag. Um uh, or buying some raffle tickets to win a the next cool fly rod or piece of gear that was donated to the group, or joining as a member. Um, you can join as a business member as well. So there's a lot of opportunities to get involved and support. That's great. Well, hopefully, some, maybe some people that listen to this podcast will will do just that and help support the cause. Emily, I really appreciate your time today. I know you're Thank a busy you. young woman, <laughs> and you've got a lot on your dance card. And just taking the time that you did today really means a lot to our audience and myself. And thank you for doing that. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays. So be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then... This is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.